Hello, and welcome to the second series of Multiscale Musings. We are a network of computational science PhD students based at the University of Warwick, who are producing a podcast all about theory and computation in the physical sciences. I'm your host, Idil, and joining me today is Charlotte Rogerson, a PhD student from the Warwick Physics Department. Today we will be discussing the latest advances in robotics research in the chemical sciences, and joining us in this discussion will be Professor Joshua Schreier from Fordham University in New York. So, hello Joshua, and thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure having you join us all the way from the US, or rather the East Coast. Um, so, start to start us off, uh, could you introduce yourself for our listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself and some of your current research interests? Sure, well, thank, thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I'm a professor of chemistry at Fordham University in New York City. Uh, I, I currently hold the, the Kim B. and Stephen E. Bepler Chair Professorship. Uh, my research is focused on the area of really sort of the intersection of computational chemistry and data science and experimental chemistry. You know, my training and my background is as a computational chemist. I did my doctoral studies at the University of California in Berkeley and uh, Followed that up with uh, postdoctoral work at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. And at that time, I was really focused on using what we know about the physical world, mostly quantum mechanics, but a little bit of thermodynamics, uh, to, to understand uh, nanoparticles and, and develop new types of simulations that we could use to simulate very large uh, systems, systems with tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of atoms. After that, I was... Uh, oh, certainly. Uh, fascinating. Okay, sure. Uh, after that, I was a uh, faculty member at Haverford College outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, and, you know, there I developed my own research agenda, working on lots of different things. Uh, but again, staying within this, this sort of sphere of using computational methods to explain things about the chemical world, in particular, the properties of, of different types of materials. Uh, it was there, and, and really in collaboration with uh, a colleague of mine there, uh, Alexander Norquist, who is a, a synthetic solid-state chemist, uh, that I really sort of got interested in, in how we can do things with experiments. And in fact, uh, we had lunch one day back in maybe 2013 or 2014, uh, with a, a new visiting professor in computer science, Sir Ralph Riedler, uh, who had just joined the faculty. And we were trying to think about, like, what could we do together? She was coming from a background of, of computational graphics. And so we were just sort of brainstorming ideas. And then uh, one of our brainstormed ideas was thinking about how we might be able to use experimental data uh, as inputs to machine learning models. And uh, in, in particular, we, we just really found the idea of using unpublished data, all of the things that, that don't work, the, the failures, if you will, or the, even the unreported successes uh, as inputs to the machine learning models. And there were really very few people doing machine learning for chemistry or, or materials back then. Uh, but we just thought that this was a, a fantastic idea. And so... Uh, that was really my my foray, or really all of our foray into this field of, of using machine learning for for materials problems. And uh, with that, you know, I've, I've gotten more and more involved in 
interacting with experimentalists and, and trying to do machine learning related tasks for experimental chemistry. So I guess while my heart is still a, a computationalist and somebody that loves playing with computers, uh, at, at, at the same time, uh, a lot of that now is, is about how do we interface computers and, and kind of a computational approach more directly with, with things that happen in, in the laboratory. Perfect. So, yeah, that's definitely very interesting. Um, I've always wondered what they do with um, some of the research that doesn't go quite to plan, especially in chemistry, um, in terms of mechanisms and things like that. They don't really do much with it, but it's nice to see that you do have a purpose for it in terms of machine learning. Well, that, well, that's that, that's exactly it, right? I mean, we, uh, you know, our, our initial thought on this, and, and it's sort of obvious in retrospect, is, you know, if you take a very naive approach, right, and you say, okay, let's imagine training a machine learning model on all of the results that have been published in the scientific literature, uh, you know, well, then all you'll see are successes, right? And so your machine learning model will, will very naively conclude Oh yes, clearly everything that you try should work. Uh, and of course, we know as, as as experimental scientists, or at least scientists who have taken an experimental laboratory course at some point in the past, uh, we know that that's absolutely not the way that that, that it is. And so, you know, finding the these sort of unreported data sources, uh, we, what we were able to show uh, is that this really tremendously improves your ability to to build predictive machine learning models that that actually can, can assist you in the laboratory and help you in the laboratory. And, you know, our, our sort of where that work has evolved more recently is really thinking about building robotic systems that, you know, are not only just performing the experiments, but also capturing all of that experimental data as it gets generated. And so that way we've got a complete transcript of, of everything that has happened in the laboratory at, at, at much more depth and, and with a lot more capture of, of, of the nuances in the data and metadata than one would have in, in, in just a, a laboratory notebook, for example. Um, and so really, we're, we've been trying to take a sort of an end-to-end -end approach to, to capturing all of the, those failed and successful outcomes and, and then reporting that to, to the world and trying to make that a little bit easier for people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's a good idea. I mean, I'm I'm all for that. <laughs> okay, so before we sort of delve into the science, perhaps let's talk a little bit about some of your interests and your hobbies. So previously, we've said sort of pre-lockdown and post-lockdown. <laughs> I know some of these things have changed, but essentially, what do you like to do when you're not doing science? Sure. Uh, th that's an excellent question. <laughs> um, yeah, well, so... Uh, of course, some of the things that I like to do involve looking at art and looking at paintings, particularly in museums and galleries and places like this. Uh, you know, I also, I really enjoy reading um, and uh, in particular, uh, reading and learning about philosophy is just a fun hobby. Uh, since this is a podcast, I guess I should give a recommendation to uh, Peter Adamson's the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps podcast series, uh, which is tremendously fun. During the lockdown, I was convinced to get into playing chess. So we play a daily chess game here. And uh, I can't say that I'm any good, but but it, it's something that you can do and kind of, kind of fun. Um, 
so I guess those are sort of the main things, reading and and um, thinking about the world. <laughs> nope, certainly sounds like fun. I think a lot of people have gotten more into board games and being with family and friends right now. So that, you know, chess is a great game. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's got a, a long history. And, you know, and I guess the thing that is kind of fun as a as a scientist is there's a way in which we we like doing science because it's about problem solving, or at least one of the things that I like about science and, and particularly about computational science is that often there, there is this sort of problem solving game like aspect to it. But of course, in research problems, you're not guaranteed that there's a convergent end to your your problem all the time. And I, I guess the nice thing in chess is that you're still problem solving, but ultimately the game ends. <laughs> and you know, there's a there's a hard guarantee that the, that the game will end one way or another, um, and so so it kind of draws on on, on some of that. Uh, and also, I think it's really kind of fascinating. Maybe there's an overlap here. It, it's it's really fascinating to to think about some of the uh, artificial intelligence strategies that people have employed for games like chess, and think about ways that we may be able to use similar strategies in the, the the sciences, right, in, in, for example, chemistry. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I've heard of quite a number of AI techniques that have been used to try and beat computer at chess and so on. <laughs> but yeah. OK, so I mean, we discussed this earlier. So for most of us now, you know, we've been working from home for almost a year now. And my question to you is, how has the last year affected your schedule in terms of conferences and meetings? Has it allowed for sort of for more downtime for research or possibly the opposite? I, I would argue probably the opposite. Uh, I, I, I feel that, so here in New York City, we've been shut down really for, for a full year now. Um, and in, in a way, I feel as if I've never been busier than, than during this past year. Uh, certainly, the the advent of online meetings has really made it easier to participate in in more conferences and and presentations and and talks. Uh, by eliminating the travel time, uh, it makes it easy to fit it in into a teaching schedule and and uh, jet off virtually at least to give a talk in various places and then come back and teach a class immediately afterwards. Uh, and so uh, there have been uh, really kind of a lot of opportunities to, to do that and also to participate in other types of, of things, uh, kind of workshops related to basic research needs and uh, grant reviewing opportunities and, and, and so on. So uh, some of those things I would be happy to see continue in an online format. Uh, I, I think that a lot of the, the sort of grant reviewing uh, panels and, and, and other types of, of workshops like that actually can be very effectively done online and, and it's it's easier to, to participate. Uh, I do miss the in-person conferences or, or going to different chemistry departments and, and getting a chance to interact with the, the students and the faculty there. Um, but it is what it is. Um, uh, you know, as, as far as the, the research side, you know, the, the computational side of the research that I do has largely continued unhindered, right? The, the students can work from home. They use their laptops and, and connect to the servers they need access to. 
They can run simulations or analyze data just as, as well as they could before the lockdown. The engagement with experiment really uh, was uh, delayed pretty significantly by the, 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 the lockdowns. And that actually even continues to this day. Uh, some of the work that we do involves robotic automated liquid handlers to perform chemical syntheses. Uh, and we use disposable tips on the, on the pipettes. But of course, those disposable tips are in, in high demand for doing the, the types of assays that people do for diagnosing COVID. Um, and so, uh, you know, the supply chain limitations are, are still really a, a hindrance to, to some of the experimental work. Uh, and we're not quite over that yet. So I think the, the effects on research have been sort of uneven, uh, mostly not impacting or, or impeding the, the work on the computational side, but even until now, really slowing down some of the, the experimental work that we do. Hmm. That's um, very interesting. Never thought of how it actually impacts um, supply chains as well. It's not it's not something you immediately associate with it as well. Right. And, and, and there are other types of slowdowns related to experimental work. Uh, you know, on a, on a, a few projects now, uh, we have there are, for instance, outside vendors that, that provide the robots that, that we use. And, you know, the ability of the, the technical support staff to come in and do equipment installations is, is a limit. So, for example, one of one of the robots that I, I've been helping to get installed uh, they had it sitting in a box last February, uh, and the technician was scheduled to arrive uh, in March to help install it, uh, but it didn't get installed until October, right? Mm -hmm. Because obviously the, the technician wasn't there. Um, and so uh, these are, you know, lots of lots of impacts uh, associated with you know, universities and, and research institutes putting restrictions on, on who can can uh, enter the premises and all, all obviously for, for very good reasons, right? I mean, it's, it's very understandable that this is the case, uh, but it's also very challenging if you are a, a doctoral student or a postdoc uh, and you're sort of watching your time slip away during this. And so what we've tried to do uh, for, for the more experimental uh, postdocs and, and, and students is use some of this time to also help them develop their data management and, and data mining skills and using the data sets that we've accumulated through past experimental campaigns, trying to dig out new and interesting things uh, there. And uh, if, if nothing else, it gives them some new tools that they can use to, to be effective in, in, in the future. And uh, at best, you know, sometimes we find interesting things that have been lurking in those data sets. Uh, and this has given us the opportunity to, to really find them and, and expose those results. Great. Um, so I guess the next question is, what do you have a favorite scientific fact that you like to like tell people to introduce yourself or anything? Anything that, you know, is a really cool or quirky fact? Well, all right. Here's here's a really cool and quirky fact. Have the, have you ever heard of retrograde solubility? So uh, so this is this is a wild, wild thing. Uh, sometimes it's it's. Uh, so let me let me tell you what it is. So we're all familiar with the idea that it's easier to dissolve solids in liquids at higher temperatures than at lower temperatures. For example, if you want to add a spoonful of sugar to your, your tea, it's easier to dissolve that sugar. You can dissolve more sugar at high temperatures 
Whereas if you add it to iced tea, it just sits as granules on, on the bottom of your, your teacup, very disappointingly. So it turns out that it, there are some physical systems that, that have a, a retrograde solubility. Uh, that is to say that the, the solutes are less soluble at high temperatures and more soluble at low temperatures. And so this is, first of all, a wonderful introduction to chemistry, general chemistry type, type question, right? Thermodynamically, how can this be? Uh, and it, it shows up in a few different chemical systems, in, including um, it's actually the principle of, of what's known as an inverse temperature crystallization uh, effect that occurs in perovskites. So uh, I sort of got into that and uh, kind of discovered it for myself or learned about it myself in the context of, of the perovskite research. Uh, but actually, it's something that is more general, and uh, examples of this are known in, in metallurgy, uh, and there are even some simple salts where you can observe something like this. So I think that's a great little parlor trick. Uh, it completely defies our, our usual intuitions of, about how solubility works. And uh, at the same time, it's nothing too esoteric, right? We can all imagine trying to dissolve a spoonful of sugar in, in a hot or cold cup of tea, uh, and then it's fun to think about these chemical systems where that does not happen. Great, yeah. Um, so next, uh, do you want to give a brief overview of your academic journey uh, up to this point and how you got how you got drew into theoretical and computational research as opposed to working experimentally, for example? Sure, that, 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 that's a great question. You know, when, uh, when I was a kid, uh, I, I guess, so a few things that helped me go onto the path of science and, and computing. Uh, when, when I was a kid, my, my mother at one point was, so I guess I should take a step back. Uh, my mother during the 70s uh, actually worked as a computer programmer. Uh, and then when I was in elementary school, uh, she had actually even started taking some coursework for a master's in science education. Uh, and so I guess I was in a household that had some interest in science and, and, and computing. Uh, my father was a was interested in computers early on in, in kind of the, the 80s. Uh, and so growing up, we happened to have computers around. And you could back in those days, you would get a magazine. It would have computer programs in, in it in the basic programming language. And you'd look at the magazine and you type in the program and you'd invariably make some typos and you'd have to figure out how to debug it. And, uh, but then at the end, you would have this sort of working little game uh, that you would type in yourself. And so I guess I grew up uh, uh, around computers and uh, so computers were, were sort of in the background and I always found those really fascinating. Uh, you know, uh, math was also something that, that was just, fun and interesting. And of course, science was, was another one of these things that was just kind of around. And, you know, our, our mother would do science experiments with us uh, and, and, and various things. So all of that was, was really great. Uh, as uh, in the university, I, I guess I had started on the pre-medical track. Uh, and then something that was really helpful for me, I had a history professor who had said, hey, you know, you should actually try an experiment, right? You know, with your life, uh, see if you like this medical stuff and, and work on an ambulance, right? So I got the license to be an emergency medical technician and, and worked 
on ambulances for, for a while uh, while doing my studies. And what I learned was that sick people are not very interesting. They're just, you know, they're just busy with, they don't want to talk to you about philosophy or mathematics or the nature of, of, of the world. You know, they're just busy being sick, you know, necessitating your, your ability to do this. So, uh, but at the same time, I was taking organic chemistry and I really just love that, that aesthetic of being in a laboratory and you're crystallizing this, this unique compound and all the wonderful smells and really the, kind of the alchemy of it. Uh, I did uh, some undergraduate research at the University of Connecticut, and uh, that was really my exposure to the idea of physical chemistry as a, as a discipline that you can engage in. Uh, I did work with uh, Professor Harry Frank on uh, uh, carotenoids and uh, the kind of carotenoid biophysics. And uh, then the, the summer after that, I had the opportunity to do uh, research work at the University of Florida. And I actually had a, a joint project as an undergraduate uh, with an experimentalist, uh, Alex Ungerhofer, uh, who did electron spin resonance on chlorophyll dimers that were related to, to photosynthesis. And with a, a theoretical chemist, Michael Zerner, who um, unfortunately passed away in, in the year 2000, uh, but he was the developer of the Zindo method that maybe some of you have used for calculating optical properties in molecules. Uh, and so that was really great because that was an exposure for me of, hey, you can put together these things that you like of chemistry and co computation and use it to solve problems. And you can even make a career out of it, right? You know, we were surrounded by graduate students and postdocs and professors, right, who, who worked on all these things. Uh, and so for me, that was really the, the kind of the, 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 the turning point saying, oh, yes, this, this is absolutely the way to do it. Uh, as a graduate student at the University of California, I worked with uh, uh, Professor Brigitte uh, Whaley, um, and she had a, just a fantastic, a fantastically diverse group at the time. Um, she has done work over her career in a number of fields, including quantum computing, and quantum materials uh, of, of different kinds, uh, in, including semiconductor nanomaterials, uh, which was the project that I was working on. And it was just this tremendously fertile group of people, right? And her uh, instructions to us were, find something interesting that you wanna work on and work on it as long as it's quantum. Uh, and so it was a great test bed that you, know, you could go in there and but, you know, for example, I worked on understanding uh, the behavior of electron spins in semiconductor nanoparticles, uh, but with an eye towards, well, how can we use this in devices? Uh, you know, maybe classical types of devices, like things like spintronics, or quantum devices, right? Things like, like spin qubits. Um, and so it was just a, a, a phenomenal group to be in uh, and, and kind of great interactions that you can have. Uh, and so I guess that then solidified me as a, as a computational scientist. Uh, there was no going back for, from, from there. Great. Um, so obviously being where you are in your career right now, um, given all the experience that you've had, is there anything you would tell your, like maybe just um, your um, past self, any advice you would give to maybe, you know, anything that would help? That's an excellent question. And, and I guess I give advice like this to my undergraduate students even now. Certainly, I think something that is important is become very good at a programming language. 
uh, is, is always important. And, and I would say that for any student in the, the computational sciences, one of the, the really valuable and sort of uh, cross-applicable skills, transferable skills that you'll learn during your studies is the ability to reduce complicated problems to things that are computationally tractable. And so to the extent that you can, you can do that, uh, you've got lots of different career possibilities, you know, both within science as, as well as outside of science. Uh, I would also say it's very helpful to study uh, both the ideas of software engineering as a practice and good software engineering practices, as well as the sort of the, the more theoretical side of computer science, right? Understanding different types of, of data structures and, and algorithms can be really helpful. And there are many examples of cases where uh, if you know that literature or you know enough about that literature to ask the right people, you can take what seems to be an intractable problem for you and map it onto something that is, is, is much more tractable computationally or realize that it's just inherently intractable. Uh, and computer scientists have done, have done great work on, on that. Um, I, I think that the, the other piece of advice that I, I give to students and that I, I, and I guess I would continue to give to my past self is keep, a, keep an open mind and, and read a diverse set of things. Uh, I think it's always a good idea to allocate some time at the end of the week, you know, Friday evening or Saturday evening or, or whatever, to reading uh, reading the journals, right, and seeing what what's out there, right. And I think reading kind of broad journals, things like Science and Nature, just to get a sense of what's out there in the broader scientific world and what connections you can find is is really helpful. Uh, of course reading and, and skimming over the, the journals in your discipline to get an idea of what other people are doing and, and trying to find possible connections, uh, you know, kind of new, new ideas or, or new ways of putting ideas together that other people haven't thought of. And, and I think there, I mean, there's also value in just reading broadly, right? You know, uh, 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 certainly a lot of the ideas that have informed my work have come not just from reading the scientific literature, but also finding out what behavioral psychologists think about the world, right? And, and, and their insights into to how humans make decision processes, uh, or just kind of reading about what people are doing in, in uh, computer science or numerical algorithms or, or machine learning. Um, and so, so I think reading broadly is really helpful and uh, kind of creates the opportunity for you to come up with your own ideas. And I guess finally, keeping a notebook is valuable. If you look at all of the, the, the great geniuses of the past, Leonardo da Vinci, Thomas Edison, uh, they, they all kept these notebooks. And uh, you know, there's a value to that that is hard to describe. Uh, you know, there's a way in which you could just throw away all those notes that you take after the fact, but somehow the act of recording it is, 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 is really valuable. But it does also help to be able to look back and, and pull out pieces. And, you know, I, I don't know if that has to take the form of a paper notebook anymore these days. Uh, I think a suitably organized set of, of computer files can serve a, a similar purpose. But I think finding some sort of notebooking system to keep track of the things that you, you're reading, but also the things that you're thinking about and those all of those little sketches and ideas that you have 
um, and being able to have them in one place so that you can flip through them and put them together into new and interesting arrangements is, is, is important. I guess also get eight hours of sleep every night, eat a healthy diet and, and exercise uh, are probably also good things to recommend. <laughs> No, that's all sort of great advice, especially for our younger younger audience. So, right, so you, you have you have this book, and an introduction to computational physical chemistry, and in it I can see that you have an interest in integrating computational science and simulations into undergraduate teaching. So, for an area of research that's sorely underrepresented in many teaching programs, how do you think we can best equip students with skills? Or in, you know, to excel in computational and theoretical research, whether that's in industry or, or even in academia. Right, right. I mean, I, 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 perhaps we're preaching to the choir here with this podcast, uh, but I, I do think that, that computational skills and computational thinking, even apart from any particular programming language, is just absolutely essential for you as a, as a scientist. Uh, and perhaps even for you just as a person in the world, right, and being able to, to, to make sense of things. Uh, you know, I, I, the, the approach that I took in this book uh, was really focused on, you know, is there a way that we can incorporate computational methods into classes that chemistry students already take? And so it developed out of material that I had incorporated into the physical chemistry course for undergraduates that, that I taught um, and uh, was really intended almost as kind of like a parasitic textbook, right? That you would have your, your old fashioned physical chemistry textbook that would have you do a bunch of integrals and uh, find the Hermite polynomials and, and do funny things with them. Uh, but then you could supplement it with this, the, these sort of add-ons, these computational activities that would show you how to extend those ideas and, and uh, kind of in, uh, use the ideas that you were learning in your traditional physical chemistry textbook, but add just enough computation to, to kind of apply them more broadly. Uh, you know, of course, also you could use the, the, the book as, for a standalone course in computational chemistry. And it's become pretty common, I, I think, at least in the United States, that you know, most chemistry departments have an elective in computational chemistry. I think there's kind of a general appreciation that that's the case. I guess what's different uh, for my book and I guess my approach is I'd rather have students learn computational chemistry by building things up from scratch, you know, kind of make it yourself, rather than, all right, well, here's how we're going to use Gaussian and lamps and you know, these kind of existing packages. Uh, I guess I've always found it more compelling to kind of fiddle with things and, and, and build things up from, from scratch. And so that's the, the approach that, that I took here. Yeah, it's great to see uh, the computational aspect be assimilated into the curriculum, uh, definitely more now than it has been. Yeah, um, and, and, and I guess just to follow up on that and maybe going back to scientific heroes of, of different kinds, right? You know, if you think about it, chemistry has always been a data science. Like, think about Mendeleev, right? He had all of these properties, and he was looking for a data structure that would coordinate all that information, right? It's a classic problem of unsupervised learning, right? Linus Pauling, right, had this vast archive of X-ray crystallographic data. And he said, hey, 
let me propose a linear model of you know, atoms or spheres. What's the radii of each of the spheres such that I get all of the bond lengths that I observe in my binary solids, right? And so those tables of ionic radii that you, that you see in your introductory chemistry classes, right, are all derived from that. It's, it's really, in some sense, just a, a machine learning type approach, right? You know, you posit a linear model, you know, the, the distances between atoms look like the sum of the radii of the atoms. Find a set of radii that, that best describe the global set of, of data. Uh, you know, they, of course, Linus Pauling was just a genius, right? So he could do all these things in his head and with a pencil and paper. Uh, I'm not a genius, but I have a computer. So, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, that in fact, all of the you know, students now have access to these comp computational resources. You know, it's possible to discover those things from the data yourself, right? And so I think, you know, maybe there's a, a way that we can think about it that chemistry has always, in some sense, been a, a, been a data science. And maybe the rise of these computational tools allow us to return to those roots, in, in a sense. And, and rediscover chemistry as, as a data science and empower students to rediscover chemistry for themselves in an accelerated way uh, with a little bit of adult supervision, perhaps. <laughs> Just to make it faster <laughs> than the hundreds of years of, of effort that went in. Okay, so moving on to some slightly more research-related questions. Uh, it's a couple of questions I'm really keen to get the answers on. Um, so. I know you're sort of interested, you know, we're interested in uh, the details of the robotic systems that you're designing for discovery of these perovskite materials that you mentioned earlier. Uh, perhaps can you explain a little bit more about how, how that will work? Sure, ab absolutely. And, you know, you might want to link in the show notes for your podcast to the Chemistry of Materials 2020 paper uh, that we had come out last summer uh, that describes sort of the first iteration of this system. You know, the, 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 this is a problem of, you know, we wanted to develop some way, we wanted really a test platform for testing this idea of, can we develop software that enables us to have a comprehensive specification of what you should do in the laboratory and a comprehensive capture of what actually did happen in the laboratory. And that, that data capture is not just the sort of the the the, the data the, the intended data but also metadata around the experiment right you know when did it happen who did it what machine was it on how was it calibrated and so on right so really kind of trying to get this this comprehensive picture so in in some sense you know the 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 robots are just a means to the end of developing you know demonstrating that we've developed software that allows us to 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 do this and then kind of giving us data sets that we can try to mine for interesting things. The, the robot system that, that we've described in that chemistry materials paper, we call RAPID. Uh, and it's a liquid handling robot, not unlike the kinds that are, are now becoming more and more widely used in biology laboratories. Essentially, you could think about it as a set of motorized pipettes, right? So it you know moves liquid from one container to another container. Uh, some of those containers are vials of, of reagents that we've made. We're, we're making uh, hybrid halide perovskites. So these are uh, sort of artificial minerals, if you will, uh, that consist of organic building units and inorganic building units. Um, so the, the liquid handler transfers 
stock solutions that contain the, the starting reagents from source reservoirs and then pipettes them into to reaction vials. And the reaction vials can be uh, shaken, uh, they can be heated uh, to, to perform the reactions. And, and then we can characterize what, what the results are. So uh, a lot of the stages of that are, are automated. Of course, we still need humans to make the stock solutions and, and, and prepare things and also to babysit the robot. Uh, but but you know what we've been able to do is then use this system to do thousands and thousands of reactions. So we can do we do 96 reactions in a batch. Uh, it takes about three to four hours to to do uh, a round of the these perovskite syntheses. And so we can really crank through uh, you know a tremendous amount of chemical diversity as well as exploring these different compositional variables that that determine whether a perovskite will form or, or not. And so using this system, uh, we've been able to, uh, you know, which relies on this inverse temperature crystallization effect that we talked about a few minutes ago, uh, we've been able to find just a, a tremendous number of perovskite materials that in fact have this inverse temperature crystallization or this retrograde solubility effect. Uh, and that was just totally surprising. Like nobody had any idea that, that there should be so many of these, uh, you know, before we got started, there were maybe three or, or four cases that were known about. We discovered 15 just by letting the robot run. And, you know, the, the other thing that we found is that actually you don't need that much data to make good predictive models. Uh, so what we were able to find out is that, you know, just that initial batch of, of 96 randomly selected reactions is enough to build a machine learning model that is then capable of predicting with, with pretty high accuracy any subsequent experiments that you would do with that set of, of reagents. So, you know, changing any of those other compositional variables that you would want, we can predict that, you know, pr pretty, pretty, uh, with, with a pretty high success rate. Uh, and so that's really kind of surprising, right? We often think about these kind of machine learning approaches as being very data hungry, right? You know, requiring big data sets. But of course, in the sciences, we never really will have big data sets. We're never going to have billions of clicks <laughs> like Google has uh, uh, on all of us. You know, ex even big science experiments are, are maybe a few hundred to a few thousand data points. And so it's really kind of um, reaffirming that we found that, you know, just, for instance, 100 experiments is, is, is enough to, to kind of get an understanding and be able to build pretty decent machine learning models within a given chemical composition. Yeah, that sounds really, really interesting and really can be applied to a lot of different things and a really fascinating part of research you're doing there. Um, so I wanted to ask next about the project that you're a part of called the Dark Reactions Project. Ah, yeah. Um, do you want to give a brief overview of what the aims of, the, of that project is and any surprising results you've found from that project? Sure, sure. And, you know, we touched on this a little bit earlier. So this is the, this this project that came out of the our, our insight, our lunchtime conversation about, hey, when, you know, the, the, there's so much information that is just languishing in laboratory notebooks sitting on a bookshelf somewhere, right? All of those reactions that people have actually tried in the real world, they've done the experiments, uh, but those, those reactions and their outcomes never see the light of day. And so what, what we did is we said, all right, you know, we've got access to our own lab, lab notebooks, right? So we paid some undergraduate students to go through and digitize those, those 
records, right? Digitize a decade's worth of, of, of lab records. Uh, so again, another plug for undergraduate researchers. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in a sense, you could think about this. This is the most environmentally friendly chemistry that you can do, right? Those reagents have already been used, right? But we're kind of giving new life to those, those experimental results. So the idea there was to, to, first of all, show that there's value in including these types of unpublished successes, failures, near misses into, into chemical data sets. Uh, we also tried building some infrastructure for allowing people in the community to contribute reactions, right? And, and kind of contribute their records to this, this comprehensive recording. The, the, the challenge I think is a sociological one, right? Or maybe a, maybe a labor force one. Uh, whenever we would go and give talks on this, the professors would always say, that's a great idea. I want all of my students to do this. And the students during the talk would say, that seems like a pretty good idea. But the follow through was actually pretty small, right? In the sense that you know, it, it's, uh, it's hard to see the immediate return of value as a, as a graduate student or as, as a postdoctoral fellow to spending this extra time recording your failed reactions in a machine readable way. Uh, you know, oftentimes you as a student, you just want to get on to the next experiment you know, that will work and that will give you a traditional publication. So, you know, it, while it is true that once you accumulate enough data and, you know, our, our experience working on this for our own chemistry was, you know, it's in the ballpark of maybe five to 10,000 experiments is that, that sort of critical threshold. Once you accumulate that, it's, it's tremendous, right? You have the, you can build machine learning models that help you be more productive in, in the future. But until you get to there, it's kind of hard to justify for you as the individual student worker doing the, the, the work, the, the, the effort that happens. And so, you know, we really didn't have a, a broad adoption of this. Despite the enthusiasm of, of the professors, the, the, the graduate students were not so keen on doing this. Uh, so we've tried a few different things over the years. Uh, one of them was uh, what we called our inverse research experience for undergraduates. So we train undergraduate students in some of the basics of, of this type of hydrothermal chemistry and in good data management skills. And then we send them out to other universities over the summer to work in a laboratory and digitize records that are there and, and maybe teach the graduate students how to, how to digitize the records. Uh, so we've tried that, that strategy. Uh, and then, you know, I, I think that some of our, the limited success that we've had in convincing people to do this also motivated our project on having robots do this instead, because the robots will just do whatever you want, and the data is already born digital, so to speak, uh, and so it's very natural to to uh, accumulate it. So uh, that that's sort of the the direction on, on that project. No, definitely, absolutely. I mean, sounds very interesting. What I particularly like about your research is just how many sort of domains of AI that you explore. You know, from machine learning to robotics. Usually, it's just one or the other, but you you know, you found a really great way to combine the two. Yeah, and, and of course, it relies on a, a tremendous network of collaborators. So to, to yeah. be fair, uh, you know, uh, I'm not an experimentalist. So when, when I have an experimental problem, I talk to my friend and, and co-author, uh, Alexander Norquist, right, who is really the expert on the synthesis of these organic, inorganic hybrid materials. 
Uh, the lab automation work is done, you know, with again with my friend and collaborator uh, Emery Chan at the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory, uh, and you know a, a lot of our machine learning work is also done in collaboration with Sorel Friedler, who's a computer science professor. So you know this is not success has many parents <laughs> uh, here, uh, but you know I think that the advantage that that we have talking to the two of you and to your audience as computational scientists is that we are very well suited for sitting in the middle of projects like these, right? We understand both the domain science of, of chemistry, for example, or biology or plasma physics or, or whatnot, uh, but we also understand the, the computational work. And so we can be that bridge between machine learning specialists, experimental specialists, and having our own ideas about how, how, how the world works and being able to bring a, a computational modeling perspective to it. So I think that maybe that's another uh, strength that computational scientists have is, is we can be those connecting nodes in, in this new type of, of scientific inquiry. Yeah, definitely. Connecting nodes in this graph. <laughs> a absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Why not? OK, so, um, well, it looks like we've gotten to the end of the podcast, but, you know, we, we've loved having you. Um, definitely learned a lot about your research, especially in always particularly interested in robotics. I don't know a whole lot about it, so I was quite interested to learn about that. But, uh, yeah, thank you for joining us in this episode of the podcast. Um, and I guess we'll we'll let you get on with the rest of your day's research activities. OK, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. And that concludes this episode with Joshua Schreier, and we hope you enjoyed listening. As usual, if you have any comments or questions about this episode, you can reach us on our Twitter page at Multiscale News. Do join us next time for another interesting discussion, this time with Associate Professor Phil Stansfeld from University of Warwick Life Sciences Department, where we will be looking into the exciting field of biomolecular modeling and simulation and get some of Phil's thoughts on computational tools used in researching and combating the current viral epidemic. And that's it from us. Goodbye.